Good morning, everyone. Did you survive the late night Astros game? Uh, I did not. I had to read about it this morning, but way to go, Altuve. Um, well, I hope that as we've gone through Ecclesiastes together, you've seen that there is just this resounding message that keeps coming through. It's coursing throughout all of Ecclesiastes, and it's this message that's reminding us that nothing in this world will ever satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. That no matter what we pursue, that there is really no meaning and purpose within the limits of this world, or as Solomon would say, under the sun. In fact, even if you get exactly what you want, you learn that you're still longing for something more. Now, some of you have uh, known, I've mentioned before, that I love to collect pocket knives. I don't know why. I just like the different shapes. I like the different styles and steels, and I just I find it fascinating. And I'm always looking for something different than what I already have. And, and even when I get that little knife that's different than what I have, I always end up longing for the one that I don't have that I'd really like to have as well, right? And I'm pretty sure that I'm never going to find the perfect pocket knife so that once I get that one, I don't want anything new and different anymore. I think I'm always longing for something more, and that's the idea behind Ecclesiastes. That's what Solomon's saying. He's applied that same truth to money, to success, to power, Anything that this world has to offer, nothing will cure our longing for something more. And Solomon has been good to explain why, because he's telling us that we've been created for something more, that God placed within each of us a heart that longs for eternity. So anything temporary is always going to fall short. And here's the deal. <laughs> Everything in this world is temporary. Nothing lasts forever. So Solomon is trying to help us understand that, that we need God to lead us to an answer that we cannot find on our own. Now, if you want to keep trying on your own, if you want to keep turning over rocks and trying to, to find the solution to satisfy that longing in your soul, you can do that, but Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes to save you a lot of unnecessary heartache. He wants us to trust in God more than we trust ourselves. His father David wrote in Psalm 37 verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. And at the end of the day, isn't that what we're longing for? Isn't that what we're searching for? Something to, to satisfy the desires of our heart? And in this world, there are no shortage of options. We can turn to money, as Solomon has talked about. But we need to understand that hidden underneath the desire of money is a desire for security. We can desire intimacy, but hidden beneath that desire for intimacy is the desire for approval. We can seek success, but hidden behind success is the desire for acceptance. And yet, no matter how much money 
or intimacy or success we might achieve, we're always longing for something more. Delighting in the Lord is ultimately the only way to satisfy the desires of your heart. Because unlike anything in this world, God alone is eternal. Only in Him will we find eternal security. Only in Him do we find eternal approval. Only in Him do we find eternal acceptance. Living with that eternal perspective, understanding those eternal truths is the only possible way to find peace and contentment in a temporary world. Delight yourself in the Lord. And He will give you the desires of your heart. And I believe in part it's because when we delight in the Lord, the Lord actually reshapes the desires of our heart. He reshapes the desires of our heart so that what we learn to long for is His good and perfect will for our life. Those are the things that truly satisfy us because it helps us become everything He's created us to be. So as we consider those truths for what the Lord has in mind for us. Let's go to him in prayer before we open up the word together. Father, as we come to you this morning, we realize that not unlike Solomon, we too look for things to satisfy our heart in many, if not all, the wrong places. Father, it is so easy for us to be distracted by worldly desires that we lose sight of eternal promises, eternal truths. And We need to be reminded of that this morning. We need to see in your word a path to a better place of joy and contentment in this broken, temporary world. Help us to see what you desire for us to see. Help us to learn what you desire for us to learn. Lord, help us to delight in you, believing that you will fulfill the desires of our heart. Lord, reshape our desires so that we can live in what is good and perfect and true according to your will. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we'll begin reading together in verse 1. Solomon says, guard your steps as you go to the house of God. And draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words." Solomon begins here by instructing us to guard our steps. I think he's telling us to approach cautiously, but not in a spirit of fear, more of an attitude of of humility and respect. For example, if you were to walk into the Oval Office of the White House, regardless of your party preferences, I believe that you would enter in with some humility and respect. I hope that you wouldn't be prideful and arrogant enough to just walk in and sit in the president's chair and prop your feet up on the desk and start opening drawers like you own the place. In fact, I hope you wouldn't even do that at your neighbor's house, right? Solomon is saying, when you go before the Lord 
enter into his presence with humility and respect. Do not be too quick with your words or impulsive in sharing your thoughts. Be quick to listen, slow to speak. In fact, let your words be few. Because the less you speak, the more you can listen to what God wants you to know and understand. Solomon says, draw near to listen instead of offering the sacrifice of fools. I believe what Solomon is confronting here is a life of religious ritual. This is someone who, in this sacrifice of fools, is is following religious obligations. They're simply going through the motions. But they don't allow what is being spoken to expose the sin in their heart. They don't listen to the truth and understand how that truth confronts that sin in their heart. In our context, this might be someone who attends church regularly, but rarely sits in silence, reflecting on the truth of God's Word and listening to God's Spirit speak to their heart. They might actually be very knowledgeable about biblical truths, but they don't stop and listen long enough to allow what is in their head to penetrate what is happening in their heart. Solomon says it's possible for someone to work so hard at being religious, checking off all the boxes, and yet end up becoming a fool. He says we need to learn what it means to walk in an abiding relationship instead of trying to always create a religious experience. Be quick to listen. Slow to speak, eager to learn. Have a heart of humility as you enter into the presence of God. Look at how he continues in verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you owe, pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account for your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. When you hear the word vow in this passage, I want you to think of promise. And more specifically, I want you to consider it as a promise to obey. So here Solomon is warning us not to make a promise that we are unwilling to keep. Going back to entering into God's presence with a lot of words, I think Solomon is confronting this idea of negotiation in your relationship with God. So a real simple example is, Lord, if you'll you'll help me do good on this test this week, I promise I'll go to church on Sunday. Or more seriously, Lord, if you will heal my child, I promise to be devoted to you faithfully. But all too often, God answers our prayers and we forget our promise. Solomon says it's better to have never promised than to make 
a commitment that you're unwilling to keep. I believe we see the same issue here as we did in the beginning. In, in this attitude, there is an absence of humility. We try to negotiate our relationship with God. Our worship can be filled with, with selfish dreams, with empty prayers, lots of opinion about how we think things should go and what we think things should be. And we end up informing God instead of listening to what God has to say. But the heart of true worship is a heart of complete surrender. It's the heart we see of Christ when he says, not my will be done, Lord, but your will be done. Complete surrender, humble submission. Look at how he continues in verse 8. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is, is an advantage to the land. I think in these last two verses, Solomon is shifting gears a little bit, and he's turning from his focus on the authority of God and now highlighting the authority of man. And as he said before earlier in Ecclesiastes, he says, don't be surprised when you look around the world and you see injustice and oppression. And he's explaining why here, because he's telling us the world is governed by the authority of man. And left to man, we make a mess of things. So don't be surprised when you see a mess. This is especially true for people who are in power. And very often, the greater the power, the greater the possibility of corruption. You've heard it said before that power corrupts and, and uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Here's the contrast that Psalm is trying to help us see. He's highlighting how the authority of man is used to protect selfish interests. That's why he says in the passage, the officials are watching over each other in order to guard their positions of influence. Nobody wants to lose their seat of power. The king has ultimate authority over both people and land. For all of them, they're Rule is motivated by selfish interests. Their goal is to protect what they've got or to use the power to get what they want. And that contrast is intended to be uh, the opposite of what he's already explained when he looks to the authority of God, the ultimate authority who always seeks our highest good. His actions are motivated by his undefiled self-sacrificing love. His goal is to give his life away, to give his love away. The question is, to whom will you submit? Who has the most leverage in your life? Is it the opinion of man? Or is it the authority of God? How you answer that question reveals who you worship. Is it to please, be pleasing in the sight of men or to be pleasing in the sight of God? How you answer the question determines who you worship. Look at how he continues in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? 
The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. You may remember in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, it says, the love of money is the root of all evil. And I believe as we look at what Solomon unpacks here, he's helping us understand why. Because in the end... This is an issue of worship. This is not a disconnected thought. This very much flows from what he's already said. Because in the end, the love of money is misdirected worship. Instead of relying on God, we rely on money to provide security. We rely on wealth to obtain pleasure, to establish power, to lead us to contentment. If we just had fill-in-the-blank Life would be good. But Solomon says, he who loves money will never be satisfied by money. And the reason is, is because no matter how much he has, it's never enough. Back to my example with my pocket knives. The knife I always want most is the one I don't have. Somebody once asked John D. Rockefeller, who at the time was one of the, if not the wealthiest man in the world, and they asked him a really simple question. They asked him, how much money is enough? His answer was simple. He said, just a little bit more. Because no matter how much you have, it's never enough if that's where you're trying to find hope and satisfaction. And it might appear that money brings a wealth of friend because if you look on social media, the wealthy are always surrounded by people, right? They come in masses. But very often those people are more interested in the person's money than the person themselves. And so they can be in a crowded room but feel completely alone because they're not known by the people who are there. They just want what they have. They live in luxury but they still go home empty. At least a working man, Solomon says, can sleep at night. He can rest knowing, I've done all I can do. The man who is wealthy, the man who loves money, is always longing for something more. Look at verse 13. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his own hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment, for example, and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support his son. And he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation or frustration, sickness, and anger. Solomon says it's a grievous evil. When I read that, the term that comes to my mind is a sickening sin. He says it is a sickening sin to see people hoard wishes or wealth to their own demise. But not only to their own demise, as Hud often says, sin splatters. So it doesn't just affect that one person, it affects a circle of influence around them. And in this example, we see somebody who, instead of leaving a legacy, he creates a massive destruction. 
because of that unexpected loss of wealth, because of that bad investment, always trying to get something more, he loses everything. And as a result, he couldn't leave anything to his son. And as I read that, I thought, well, if his son can't survive in the absence of his dad's money, that means his dad never taught his son how to work. Instead of relying on God, he just relied on his dad. And when his dad couldn't come through, he had nowhere else to turn. Both the father and the son, Solomon says, will leave the earth in the same way. Naked they came in, naked they will leave. They were born in darkness, they will die in darkness because they trusted in the temporary instead of relying on the eternal. They trusted in the temporary instead of relying on the eternal. Solomon says those who worship the wrong things will end up in a life of frustration, a life of anger, because self-centered worship never satisfies. I mean, I think if you don't hear anything from Ecclesiastes, you can take that message to heart because it's crystal clear over and over again. Self-centered worship never satisfies. When life is all about you, it will never be enough. When life is all about you, it will never be enough. Misdirected worship is self-destructive. And not only is it self-destructive, it destroys relationships all around you. It draws us away from God's intended design when we trust in the temporary instead of relying on the eternal. Look at how he continues in verse 18 because he's going to shift gears and give us a hopeful ending to this. He says in verse 18, here's what I've seen to be good and fitting. So he's been talking about what is grievous, what is evil, what is sinful. And he says, but wait a minute. There's something that's good and fitting. And when Solomon says something is good and fitting in the midst of Ecclesiastes, you need to listen to what he has to say. Right? He goes on and he says to eat, to drink, to enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. This is the reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This too is a gift from God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Here again, Solomon is shifting from this grievous evil, this sickening sin to something that is good and fitting. Another way to say it is he's identifying something that's right and beautiful in this world. And I want you to notice that Solomon talked about the wealthy man back in the previous verses. He never once mentioned God. It's not there because God was not a part of that man's life. His God was his money. But here in these final three verses, God is mentioned four different times. So the presence of God is what takes something that was once sinful and turns it into something that is now beautiful. Because you'll notice in verse 19, He's still speaking about someone who is wealthy. But instead of worshiping their money, they realize that their wealth is a gift from God. Twice it says, 
he eats and drinks and enjoys his labor. Now, if you think about that, eating and drinking, that's the basic necessities of life, right? And even though this man is clearly wealthy enough to not have to labor, it still says he enjoys his work. So unlike the previous example where there was this insatiable appetite for more, this man enjoys the simplicity of life no matter how much he has. Daily provision. Fruitful labor. Faith in God. It says nothing about luxurious living or a licentious lifestyle. This is someone whether he has a little or a lot, whose life is centered on God. If you don't believe me, look at the verses. In verse 18 it says, He understands that the life he lives, however short or long it may be, is a gift from God. In verse 19 he says, He's empowered to eat and drink, again, as a gift from God. Later he says, He rejoices in his labor as a gift from God. And then in verse 20, he even recognizes how the gladness of his heart also comes from God. This is not a man who's finding joy and contentment in what he's acquired on his own. His joy and contentment is found in a relationship with God. And to be honest with you, I'm not so sure that he's rich because he has stacks and stacks of money in his closet. Said, I think he's rich because of the abundant love of God. His focus is fixed on the eternal, and he's not distracted by the temporary riches of this world. This man has a worship-filled relationship with God. Everything he sees and does, he recognizes as a gift of God's hand. Now, one of the things that I want you to take home from what we see in this man's example is this. When you walk with God, You are rich beyond all worldly measures. Did you hear that? When you walk with God, you are rich beyond all worldly measures. When you learn to delight in the Lord, He will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 1611 says, God makes known to us the path of life. And in His presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 23 says, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and kindness will follow me all the days of my life. All these passages are telling you the same thing. When you walk with God, you are rich beyond all worldly measures. But in order to walk with God, You've got to be humble. You've got to be willing to listen to his truth. And as you listen to that truth, you must allow it to confront your sin and reveal your need for a Savior. The Bible says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. I believe that as you go before the Lord, he is ultimately going to lead you to the person and work of Jesus Christ, because that is where your desires are ultimately fulfilled. We know that's true because of all the myriad of claims that Jesus makes throughout 
his life in ministry. One example is when he tells the crowd as he's talking to them with his disciples, he says, when you drink the water of this world, essentially is what he says, when you try to be satisfied by anything this world has to offer, you will always be thirsty. You will forever be wanting something more. It will never completely satisfy you. But he goes on to say, whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst again. That's a pretty bold statement. Whoever drinks the water that I give you. So you're longing for something more. But if you will come to me, and if you will receive what I am offering, the longing will go away. And he explains why. He says, because the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Not the broken cisterns of of worldly pleasures. This is a spring of living water that actually exists within your soul, satisfying the desires of your heart. The only way to be satisfied in this temporary world is to be awakened to the hope of eternal life. The only way to be satisfied in this temporary world is to be awakened to the hope of eternal life. Jesus Christ is the spring of living water. And through His Spirit, by the power of His Word, we have an endless supply, don't miss this, an endless supply of security and approval forgiveness and grace, of purpose and worth, an endless supply. You can drink from that well all you want to, and you will not long for something more when you are satisfied in Him. Only His eternal love will satisfy the eternal longing that is in your heart. So let me close with this encouragement. We live in a world of endless distractions and false hopes. That's not news to anyone here. We live it, we breathe it, we know it exists. And it's easy for all of us, myself included, to lose sight of what is good, what is right, what is true. I can be just as guilty as anyone else in this room, and I don't think there are any exceptions to those who sometimes get lost in disordered desires in misdirected worship. And so if you find yourself as a result of disordered desires and misdirected worship, if you find yourself in a place where you're frustrated, where you're angry, where you're in despair, as a result of worshiping the wrong things, I want to ask you to consider the possibility that maybe you've put your hope in the wrong place. Maybe you've been drinking the water that came from the wrong source, relying on the temporary instead of trusting in the eternal. Let me just encourage you, in those moments, will you at least consider the possibility that what Jesus said is true? Would you be willing to invite him into that place, even if it is a place of struggle, and ask him to show you the way? In many ways, ask him to reshape your desires, 
Consider the possibility that it may be a wrong desire that he needs to redirect to a different place so that you can then desire and, and long for what is good, what is right, what is true, what is in alignment with his good and perfect will for your life, helping you become everything he's created you to be. And not only that, let me encourage you to invite others into that place with you. Because maybe you're better than me, but I know that when I'm in those hard places, I often need people to remind me of promises that are difficult for me to remember in that moment. I need them to speak truth into my life. See, our goal is to abide in Christ so that like this man in these last few verses, we live a in worship-filled delight <laughs> so that whether we have a little or a lot, we see all that we have is a gift of God and we are satisfied by the presence of God at work through the Spirit of God because of the work that we see having been done by Jesus Christ. That we are complete in Him. How else can we possibly share the hope that is within us if we're not living by that hope that is eternal? So as we close this morning, I want us to just Use the song as a way of reshaping our desires. And let's just have a collective prayer together as we close in this song that, that God might give us a heart of worship. And not just on Sunday morning. <laughs> that when we leave this place, that there is an, a, a heart and an attitude that is inclined towards the awareness that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And within Him, there is no shifting shadow. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that when we put our trust in Him, He will satisfy the desires of our heart. And here's why. Jesus Christ is the desire of your heart. That is how your heart that longs for eternity is ultimately fulfilled. He said that you would have within you a well of water springing up to eternal life. There's this endless, eternal supply of love and grace and forgiveness and hope. So let me just encourage you as we sing together that you sing of that hope. And you ask the Lord to give you that heart of worship in everyday life, no matter where you are. Amen? Let's stand together. This is not news to you. I've found in my own life that very often whenever I find myself in a place of frustration, anger, despair, if I look and I'm honest, it's often because it's all about me. And, and if I really want to see myself in a different place, I need to make everything I'm about all about Him. And if I'll spend some time thinking about His goodness, His grace, if I shift from the temporary to the eternal, it seems to just reshape everything in my life. And I pray that the same would be true for you. Just real practically, you might consider this week spending some time in Psalm 145 or Isaiah 40. Those are two go-to passages for me when I need to shift from all about me to all about Him. And just see 
if it might reshape how you see life around you and how you might see God working in you. I love you. I'm grateful for each and every one of you. And for the grace and goodness of living life together. And being able to come to the Word together and recognize in some way it's hitting all of us in places that we need to grow and things that we need to learn. But we give grace to each other as we're learning and growing together. And so let's just continue in our pursuit of knowing and loving Him so that all that we say and all that we do matter whether we have a little or a lot is all about him and that he is enough amen let me pray Lord thank you for the blessing of our time together now I do pray and recognizing that as soon as we walk out of these doors we are going to be confronted perhaps almost immediately with false hopes with disordered desires, with misdirected worship, in places that we have a tendency to go to satisfy longings in our heart that are ultimately only satisfied by you. And I just ask, Lord, that we might be able to recall together, individually and corporately, the truths that we've learned this morning by turning our heart towards you, seeing that you alone satisfy the desires in our heart. Lord, I pray that we can delight in you and believe that you will satisfy the desires of our heart. And I ask, Lord, that we ultimately find that Jesus is that greatest desire that our heart longs for most. And that when we have him, or better, he has us, it's enough. Not just now, but for all eternity. Lord, thank you for that reminder this morning. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.